is the legal brief. I'm Misty Maris. I wanted to pop on today because we're still waiting for the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. So the jury has been deliberating for two days, eight and a half hours, day one, seven and a half hours, day two. They will be reconvening today sometime around, oh, pretty soon, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So what's going on in this case? So the jury has asked for certain information. They wanted to review some video from that day in Kenosha, Wisconsin, specifically relating to the interaction between Kyle Rittenhouse and Greg uh, Gage Gertzkruz. So that was an interesting piece of information that tells us that the jury is really scrutinizing these charges, really scrutinizing what the burden of proof is. They're really taking this seriously and they're going through everything methodically. I mean, that's one explanation for the amount of time that this is taking. The jury hasn't asked any substantive questions. They haven't asked any procedural questions other than the method to watch videos. That was that was really it. Who knows what will happen today? I just want to make a blanket statement. It's very, very difficult to understand or to really get into the minds of the jury. They will surprise you. We can't really predict which way it's going to go. But the fact that this is taking a little bit of time, I think uh, I think that's worse for the defense in this particular case. So all the jury has asked for so far, copies of the jury instructions, that's the law that they have to apply to the facts and to rewatch some of the videos that they saw during the trial. What could all this mean? What could this time lapse mean? Why hasn't the jury come to a conclusion? Well, it can be exactly what I said. It, it can tell us that the jury needs time to know and understand those jury instructions. It can tell us that the jury wants to uh, really go through every single charge methodically and analyze the charges versus the self-defense argument that Kyle Rittenhouse is relying on. Or it could be something else. It could be that the jury is not unanimous. Remember, this is a criminal court case, not a civil court case. So before the jury can return a verdict, the verdict must be reached unanimously. That means all of the jurors have to agree on all of the charges. So sometimes when you see a case taking a while and the jury not coming back quickly, it could mean that there is a split, that there are some jurors that think differently than other jurors. We've all seen that movie, 12 Angry Men, right? Well, that's a fictional movie, obviously, uh, but it's not very different from what happens in the in the jury room in that if there's somebody who disagrees, the jurors can go back and forth and talk to each other about their perspectives on each charge, why they believe a certain thing. In fact, the jury has an obligation to do everything they can to get to a unanimous conclusion. So let's talk about what happens if that's the case. If the jurors are split, if the jurors cannot come to a unanimous decision, and this is a couple steps down the road because they're obviously still deliberating right now. We don't know if this is the case, but if the jurors are split before the judge declares a mistrial, because if the juries cannot come to a unanimous conclusion, that's what happens. There's a mistrial. That means that the case gets tried again. But before that happens, the judge gives what's called an Allen charge. Now, Allen is a Supreme Court case. And the Allen charge says 
in in layman's terms, you have to get back into that jury room and keep going. You have to go back and you have to keep going to do everything you can, everything reasonable to get to a unanimous decision with respect to all of the charges. So that's a couple of steps down the road. We don't know if that's going to happen. But even if the jury were to come back and say, hey, judge, we cannot get to a unanimous conclusion. That does not end the day. The judge will give an Allen charge. Now, different courts, when an Allen charge is given, they can give the jury hours, days, weeks to continue to deliberate. There isn't a time limit that the judge can impose that is written into the law. So that's something that can change court to court, judge to judge. We'll see if that's the case here. Otherwise, keeping an eye on Rittenhouse, going to keep a look into that courtroom to see if anything else, if the jury asks any other questions, because that's sometimes the best indicator of what they are thinking. Although, again, it can be very difficult to predict. So we will have more updates on Rittenhouse as that case continues to unfold. But I want to turn to another case that's capturing headlines, and this is the Ahmad Arbery case. And I have a bit of an issue calling it Ahmad Arbery, but that's what they're calling it in the media. So I want everybody to understand which case we're talking about. This is the death of Ahmad Arbery. The, the reason that I say that is because usually when we talk about a case, we talk about a case based on the, def- the, the defendant's names, the accused names. So in this case, there are three people who are defendants. Gregory McMichael, his son, Travis McMichael, and another man, William Roddy Bryan. So what is this case about? Um, I think that Rittenhouse has really been the case that that has uh, been capturing the attention of the headlines and everybody's been very focused on it. And it is obviously in verdict watch. So that's something everybody is keeping close tabs on. And we're all waiting to see what the jury does on those five felony charges. But this case is also a uh, very high profile has uh, been uh, has uh, been talked about well beyond the courtroom you know a lot of racial overtones in this case um a lot of uh talk in in the media on both sides about the implications of this case now i'm here to talk about none of that i'm talking about what's going on in the courtroom i've also been covering this case gavel to gavel. I've watched every minute of this trial and I want to catch everybody up because things are getting very intense in the courtroom. One of the defendants, Travis McMichael, took the stand yesterday. He's under cross-examination today. So let's go over a little bit about what this case is about. So just as a quick summary, uh, this case is about Ahmad Arbery, who was 25 years old. He was in the neighborhood of Satilla Shores. This is a neighborhood in Brunswick, Georgia. On February 23rd, 2020, on that day, he was shot by Travis McMichael. The state claims that he was chased, hunted down, and ultimately executed by Travis McMichael, Gregory McMichael, and a third defendant, William Bryan. Now, The defense has a very different side of the case. The defense says that the McMichaels were engaged in what is called a lawful citizen's arrest. This is based on a citizen's arrest law in Georgia. And that 
during the course of that lawful citizen's arrest, Travis McMichael got into an altercation with Ahmad Arbery, which required him to use self-defense. Now, the state's case, very different. Travis McMichael, Gregory McMichael, and William Bryan chased down Arbery and murdered him because they labeled him as a criminal because of assumptions. They called it driveway decisions without any basis. After pursuing Arbery and pinning him between two pickup trucks, the state says Travis McMichael fatally shot Arbery three times with a shotgun. The state says that this is not a case of uh, a lawful citizen's arrest. It is not a case of of justifiable self-defense. This is murder. Now, it's important to understand who all of the players are in this case. So Travis McMichael and Gregory McMichael, again, their father and son, Greg the father, Travis the son, they are residents of this neighborhood, Satilla Shores. It's been described as a quiet, quintessential suburban type neighborhood. Um, They both have former law enforcement backgrounds um, in, in certain capacities. So they have uh, the defense is, is coloring them as being, you know, as some, as people that have more knowledge of criminal law than your average Joe. Um, William Roddy Bryan is another person who lives in the neighborhood, although his connection to the McMichaels before this day, February 23rd, through the evidence that we've seen so far in the case has been tenuous. Now, This case, again, here we go with the new, not so new, but the world of criminal law and trials has really changed because of video evidence. So there's a video, and this is actually recorded by one of the defendants, William Roddy Bryant, as he allegedly took part in this pursuit. And it has played the most critical role in the case. Both sides have used the video throughout the course of the trial in their opening statements and in their direct and cross examinations. Uh, now the video, I encourage everybody, uh, I'll try and, I'll try and post a link to this, although I'm a little short on time because I have to dive back into it to watch the cross examination of, uh, Travis McMichael, but the video is the key piece of evidence here on the video taped by Roddy Bryan you see most of the interaction between Travis McMichael and Ahmad Arbery. So it has been the most pivotal piece of uh, evidence that we've seen throughout the course of this case. Of course, we've heard a lot of testimony. The prosecution rested its case uh, earlier this week, and now the defense is putting on their case. And in a pretty, I think a lot of people are going to have different perspectives about this, but in a pretty... Um, unusual move. And I'm saying unusual, although we just covered Rittenhouse and the same thing happened there, but it is unusual. Travis McMichael is taking the stand. He had his direct examination yesterday. And today he faces the probably pretty intense cross-examination. All right, let's go over the charges in this case. The prosecution says, count one, Malice murder. What is malice murder? Malice murder is a person commits the offense of murder when he unlawfully and with malice aforethought, either expressed or implied, causes the death of another human being. Express malice is a deliberate intention to take the life of another human being 
uh, where implied malice, it where no considerable provocation appears and where all the circumstances of the killing show an abandoned and malignant heart. Second charge, felony murder. Felony murder is when somebody dies in the course of committing an underlying felony. So you have to prove the underlying felony first, and then you just have to prove, you don't have to prove that somebody meant to kill someone. You just have to prove that someone died while committing a dangerous felony. The felony murder is two different underlying felonies. So first is an aggravated assault, and the aggravated assault is with a pickup truck. The second is an aggravated assault with a firearm. Uh, And then the last is attempt to commit false imprisonment and false imprisonment. So these are all of the charges that the defendants face. So let's explain a little bit about what happened. And again, the video is the best piece of evidence. So the the defense says that Ahmaud Arbery had been seen on camera footage at this house on Satilla Drive, which was a construction site. It wasn't a fully built house. And he had been caught on the owner's camera, this guy named Larry English, who was not there at the time. He, you know, he's back and forth. This was a vacation home for him. He had been caught on video five times. This is Ahmad Arbery had been seen at night five times before this interaction happened on February 23rd. One of the most critical pieces of evidence is the night of February 11th, where Ahmad Arbery was seen at this house. A neighbor had called 911. Now, police responded and Officer Robert Rash from the Glynn County Police Department responded to this call. And at this point, the McMichaels do come and they meet with Officer Rash and they talk about uh, they talk about the fact that this guy had been seen there before. And this is they didn't know his name at the time, but this is Ahmad Arbery. Uh, So they say they'd seen him before that there had the, the defense argues that the neighborhood was dealing with a rash of break-ins. There had been a lot more, a lot of criminal activity. There had been an uptick. And the defense is saying that because Ahmad Arbery had been seen before and because the neighborhood was going through these, uh, this uptick of crime, that it was reasonable for the McMichaels to believe that Ahmad Arbery had committed a crime. So it's important for us to understand what the arguments are here on the defense because it's a compound argument. Um, meaning that in order for the defense to be successful, they have two affirmative defenses that they need to prove. So the defense relies on what's called the citizen's arrest law. And interestingly enough, in the wake of this case, this law has since been repealed, but it was the law of in Georgia at the time that this happened. So it is relevant. Now, the citizen's arrest law says a private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge. If the offense is a felony and the offender is escaping or attempting to escape, a private person may arrest him upon reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. That is the key language here, everyone. Keep listening for that. Reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. As far as self-defense, this is the second piece. Georgia law is very specific at what constitutes self-defense. A person is justified in threatening or using force against another when and to the extent that he or she reasonably believes that such threat or force is necessary to defend himself or herself or a third person 
against an imminent use of force. Okay, let's break down what that means. That means that in order for self-defense to be justified, the person who is claiming it must have a reasonable belief that they are that there is an imminent threat of grave bodily injury or death to themselves or others. And that belief, again, has to be reasonable. And the use of the force that they use must be necessary to prevent death or great bodily harm. So there's a couple of inquiries there. First, is there an imminent threat? And is it reasonable that you believe that there is an imminent threat? And with that threat is deadly force in this case, was deadly force reasonable under the circumstances? Was it necessary to use deadly force under the circumstances? That's what this case is about. Again, we have a very similar issue that it happens that is in Rittenhouse in this particular case. And that is, when is a person justified in, in using force? They are not justified. They are not justified if they provoked the use of force against themselves. That brings us back to the citizen's arrest law in this particular case. So in order for the defense to be successful, the defense has to show that they were engaged in a lawful citizen's arrest based on a reasonable and probable suspicion that Ahmad Arbery committed a felony. They have to prove that. The defense has to prove that by what's called the preponderance of the evidence. So the prosecution has the obligation and the burden of proof to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. When a defendant raises the citizen's arrest statute, they have to prove that they were engaged in a justifiable citizen's arrest by a preponderance of the evidence to use this defense. Now, what's preponderance of the evidence? It is a way lower evidentiary standard than reasonable doubt. Preponderance of the evidence basically means you 51% believe that they were justified. The jury 51% believes that they were justified in uh, pursuing Ahmad Arbery under the citizen's arrest law. So if the McMichaels and Roddy Bryan can get around the citizen's arrest law and prove that they were justified, then they can use the defense of self-defense because they would not be the initial aggressor. That's their argument. Why is this so important? So the McMichaels see Ahmad Arbery running out of this house on February 23rd, the same house where he's been caught on camera five times before, this time during the day. Travis McMichael says that in a previous interaction with Ahmaud Arbery, he had seen him put his hand in his shorts and he believed that he might have been armed. So when they, when Travis McMichael sees him and Gregory McMichael sees him on this day, they go in their houses and they get guns and they get in their truck and they pursue him. And they, they engage in this pursuit in their vehicle. Travis McMichael testifying yesterday, they asked him to stop. They said, we just want to talk to you. And he, in fact, does show his weapon to Ahmad Arbery. Ahmad Arbery keeps running. At some point during this interaction, Roddy Bryan, who is the third defendant in this case, sees this happening and comes out of his driveway and also engages in the pursuit. Now, he has not testified, but there's body cam footage from the aftermath where, where he's speaking to police and he says he just knew something was going on. He knew something was up. So he joined in, uh, you know, he thought this, that Ahmad Arbery was up to no good. So he joined in the pursuit. So 
all of this serves as the basis of the case. Uh, then at some point, Ahmad Arbery turns around after you know, he's being pursued. He turns around. Travis McMichael gets out of the car, gets out of the truck. And there's a time in this video, which again was captured by one of the defendants, Roddy Bryan, where you can't really see what's happening between Ahmad Arbery and Travis McMichael. It takes place in front of the truck. This is a critical moment. This is a critical moment for the case because this all goes to who's the initial aggressor. Was the force reasonable? Travis McMichael says that Ahmad Arbery was reaching for the gun. The prosecution is saying, well, maybe he was just pushing the gun away. Maybe he wasn't reaching for the gun. So there's two sides here. Then you see the struggle continue to happen uh, to one side of the truck, ultimately resulting in three shots fired Ahmad Arbery shot. Again, there's no there's no contesting that Ahmad Arbery was shot by Travis McMichael. Defense is conceding that. We see it on the video. The question is, was it self-defense or was it murder? The car chase, that's part of this case. That's the underlying felony for the felony murder charge. It's also a felony in itself. It It is both the basis for the false imprisonment charge and the assault with a deadly weapon. Now, is a truck a deadly weapon? That's question one. Well, under the law, anything can be a deadly weapon if it's used in a certain way. So a truck is certainly capable of causing great bodily injury or harm. So in this particular case, the prosecution argues the truck was being used as a deadly weapon. This applies to both the McMichaels and Roddy Bryan. The other piece is the McMichaels. They had they they had a gun. Travis McMichael admits that he brandished his gun to uh, Ahmad Arbery. So that serves as the basis of assault with a deadly weapon and is the other uh, piece to the felony murder charge. Now, many have asked, and I think it's a very valid question, how the heck, if Travis McMichael is the shooter, is Gregory McMichael and Roddy Bryan how are they being charged with murder? They're being charged on what's called an aider and a better statute. That means that they participated in the crime. And what it requires is for the prosecution to show that there was some agreement to criminal conduct. It, it can't just be that you're standing around and you happen to be in the area. It has to be that somehow you've agreed to participate in the criminal conduct. Now, the argument for Gregory McMichael is pretty easy. He and Travis both got in the car. This is their, you know, this is their side of the story too. They both got in the car and pursued Ahmad Arbery because they say they believed that he had been responsible for this series of break-ins. And their argument is that they believed that he had burglarized the uh, Larry English's house, at this house that he had visited five times. This is their story burglary being a felony or that he had attempted to burglarize the house. Pretty easy case for them that they were in, in agreement to engage in this activity. Roddy Bryant's case is a little bit different because he comes in later. He sees this happening and he comes in and he does participate in the chase. He doesn't have a conversation with the McMichaels. There's no allegation of that beforehand to do this. Uh, you know, he's not even really that he, he doesn't even really know the McMichaels and Travis McMichael testified yesterday that he never talked to Roddy Bryan about Ahmaud Arbery or the break-ins or anything. So how does he get roped in? Well, Roddy Bryan's defense is he was just a bystander. He was somebody who just saw something going on and, and 
and came and, and wanted to help and and participated, not because he had any criminal intent, because he saw this chase happening. And then he also recorded it. He's just a witness. Uh, so that's that's the case for Roddy Bryan. He's trying to separate himself, especially from the uh, murder, especially from the felony murder charges and the malice murder charges. His lawyer even making an argument outside of the presence of the jury that, hey, maybe he's a part of the uh, lawful or unlawful citizens arrest, depending on what the jury finds. But he's certainly not a part of malice murder or felony murder. Now, that can go either way. We have to see how the evidence plays out. I don't know if Roddy Bryan is going to testify. His case is different than the McMichaels case. Uh, there's more of a challenge of making him part of the criminal uh, ag agreement to engage in criminal activity, that there has to be some agreement there. Um, it's important to note that the law does not require that you all sit around and talk about it and make a decision and conspire and all of that. No, you don't have to have this verbal agreement to engage in criminal activity to ultimately be an aider and a better in a crime. You do have to perform an overt act, an overt act towards the commission of that crime. So that's important to remember as we continue through this case. So initial impressions, I like to wait until the end of a case to make a determination about how the case will turn out, because I think that uh, we see a lot more evidence in the courtroom than we see in the media. And it's Uh, again, uh, just just to repeat, it's difficult to make an assessment at the beginning of a case because things change. You can you can find out much more information through the course of a trial. And also what we know out in the world of the public and what we know out in the uh, in the media and what we've learned, not all of that always comes into the courtroom. So it's important to remember that a trial is all about the evidence that's in in the courtroom. It's not about everything that we hear in the media. The jury is limited to what's going on and the evidence that they hear in the court. So that's an important piece. So it's hard to tell which way these cases are going to go. Now, Travis McMichael took the stand. I think a lot of legal analysts, I, I bet we're going to hear a lot about this today. People are going to differ on whether or not it was a smart move. I will say that there's two arguments to be made here. First of all, Travis McMichael is the, the person who shot the gun. And he's the person who ultimately is going to rely on that self-defense argument. What was his perception at the time of the struggle with Ahmad Arbery? Was he in an imminent fear of grave injury or death? Was that fear reasonable? Was the use of force reasonable? Remember, Ahmad Arbery is not armed, we find. Travis McMichael says he thought he might be armed, but he was not armed at the end of the day. So testifying, look, a jury loves to hear from the defendants because that's the way for them to hear what their state of mind was at the critical moment at that time. So sure, there's a benefit to the person who pulled the trigger telling their story, especially when they're levying a self-defense argument. But that comes with risks. That comes with very, very high risks. First of all, 
the defendant could open up the door to possible lines of inquiry that would otherwise be closed. There might be evidence that's not relevant if they don't take the stand that becomes relevant through their testimony. The other question is, how do they hold up on cross-examination? What happens when it's not friendly, like direct? What happens when the prosecution cross-examines them? What comes out on that record? It's difficult. And I'm telling you right now, you can prep a client all day all night, which I'm sure happened. There's no question that his attorneys did not ask Travis McMichael before he took the stand in preparation of this day of cross-examination. <clears throat> but sometimes in the heat of the moment, you don't know. You don't know how a client is going to react. So an important piece that everyone needs to remember when we talk about taking this, a defendant taking the stand, your lawyer gives you advice. Your lawyer gives you advice about what's good, bad, and ugly about it right? Every possible scenario your lawyer tells you. And then they make a recommendation. You should or you shouldn't do it. But ultimately, that decision is left up to the defendant. That is their choice. It is their right to take the stand if they want to. It is their right to not take the stand if they don't want to. So that's an important piece. Um, so what will happen today is going to be very telling for the case. Uh, this is the cross-examination. This is probably going to be some of the most critical testimony that we will see. I anticipate that we will see the videos and we will hear a lot about um, some of what the statements made during the course of this chase with the Mod Arbery. There was a police response after Ahmad Arbery was shot and there's body cam video that is... Um, you know, captured some of the statements made by the McMichaels and Roddy Bryant. They have been read into court through transcripts of that body cam video. The body cam video has not been shown. Um, the body cam video has not been shown because of another issue with a multiple defendant case called a Bruton issue, which means that one defendant can't present incriminating evidence or evidence that could incriminate another defendant in the case. So on the body cam video, Statements are made about other people in the case. So the prosecution was not able to play it for the jury. Instead, transcripts were read. And there were certain um, areas that of inquiry that could not be talked about because of that Bruton rule. Now Travis McMichael's taking the stand. Huh? More of that could come out. More of that could come out because Bruton is also a Supreme Court case. And the Bruton rule says that you can't have incriminating evidence come through one defendant because of another defendant uh, through that may be beneficial to one defendant, but is possibly incriminating to another defendant because it violates the confrontation clause. And the confrontation clause says the defendant has the right to confront the witnesses against them, meaning they have the right to cross-examine them. Now, Travis McMichael, he is on the stand. Guess what? The lawyers have the opportunity to cross-examine them for the other parties specifically Roddy Bryant. Roddy Bryant, who is comes into this to this situation later, who wants to have nothing to do with the shots fired against Ahmaud Arbery, who says, I'm just a witness. I'm just a bystander. I think we can expect his lawyer to cross Travis McMichael. Okay. I hope that everybody feels that they are caught up. There's so much that's going on in this trial. It's really hard to cover every fact. But if you take away one thing from this, remember, prosecution's burden beyond a reasonable doubt, the counts, malice murder, felony murder, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, the firearm, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, the pickup truck, false imprisonment.
And then the defenses. And this is the key and critical language for the defense. This is what matters most for the defense in this case, the citizen's arrest law. A reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion that Ahmad Arbery committed a felony. That is what this defense hinges on. They cannot be the initial aggressor. They cannot have provoked the attack by Ahmad Arbery in order to use the self-defense. Okay, so that's why this is so critically important, because otherwise, if they're not justified in pursuing Ahmad Arbery under the citizen's arrest law, they lose because they chased Ahmad Arbery in a truck and came at him with a gun. Okay, I mean, it's a pretty simple case. It's a pretty darn simple case from a self-defense standpoint. If they're the initial aggressor, if they provoked the attack, then then they can't use self-defense, can't do it cannot do it. What they need to establish, the single most important thing for the defense in this case, is that they were justified and that they were in pursuit of a lawful citizen's arrest under the citizen's arrest law. Remember these words, reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion that Ahmad Arbery committed a felony. Another important piece of this case. All right. I am going to go dip back on, be on HLN today from 12 to 3, covering the McMichael Bryant trial. Ahmad Arbery is the victim in this case. Uh, please, you know, tune in if you want to watch the trial. Otherwise, we'll have a recap because today is a big day. Cross-examination of the defendant, Travis McMichael. Was it a good idea to put him on the stand? Only time will tell. Thanks so much, everybody. Be back later with updates on Rittenhouse.